remember we have come to the place where we have seen that the new way of looking at truth or the denial of truth, depending how you want to describe it, has spread in various disciplines. It began in philosophy, it went through the art, it went through music, it went through general culture and the mass media, and it comes to philosophy, to theology. And that Soren Kierkegaard had two branches, the existential philosophy, and, the exist and then over here, equally, the existential theology. And the Karl Barth opens the way into that. Now, I discussed this at some length last time, but I want to spend some more time again considering the results. If you follow that which is really the, the neo-orthodox team, and that is accepting the higher critical theory that you put the Bible down here, but you say that it is because of your looking at it through the higher critical theory, you say it is full of mistakes in the area of the places where it touches science and where it touches history, but nevertheless you believe it in faith. And the last time I described the difference between the faith, the biblical faith, the historic biblical faith, wherein you would have wherein you would have reason also operative, not only operative, but also operative, as opposed to the neo orthodox faith wherein you have only none reasons that you just hang and drop. Now, going on from there, I do want to discuss some of the results of this a bit further. If I was lecturing in a secular school, I wouldn't put as much emphasis on the, the theological side, but I do think it's in, um, very important for us who are working in the area of the ministry to really see how completely, uh, if you accept the neo-orthodox position, Bart's position, how completely <clears throat> everything you do is changed. Absolutely everything is touched. So you have, if you say the Bible has many mistakes in it, but you're to believe it anyway, it leads to the it leads to a factor uh, that uh, there is no areas of verification. There's no areas of verification. And the best best example you could have of of the result of this is in the quote I use in my books from uh, J.S. Bizant, who is now dead, but who was the last of the old-fashioned liberals at Cambridge University in the areas of theology. And uh, in his writings in Objections to Christian Belief, which is a very destructive book for the Christian faith, Yet, nevertheless, for a small portion of it, he turns around and he deals with the neo-orthodox scheme because he was an old-fashioned liberal. And he has this quote. You can find it in one of my books. The God was there escaped from reason or both, perhaps. I forget. Uh, but in this, he deals with this and he says, if you tell me that the, that the strength of this system is its freedom from verification, then let us understand that freedom from verification leads to freedom from verification and call nonsense by its name. It's one of the most profound statements anybody's ever made on the neo-orthodox scheme. That all you left is, is with nonsense. And I would remind you, going back a step further, of, the, uh, of Grandfather Huxley's statement, in which he really showed that he understood where the battle would finally be fought. Now, this was Grandfather Huxley, who lived at the time of Darwin. And Grandfather Huxley at one time said that I can foresee the time not far in the future when faith will be separated from all fact, and especially all pre-Abrahamic history, 
and then faith will go on triumphant forever. And I'm just sure when he said this that he and Darwin put back their head and roared, because this is a good joke. Because, of course, faith would be triumphant forever because it would be not open to challenge, but it wouldn't mean anything either. And it's exactly the same thing, you see, as Bazant said later, after neo-orthodoxy was born. So we have a very curious situation uh, that Grandfather Huxley understood where the battle was probably going to be fought in the next step, and then neo-orthodoxy comes in, and then Bazant really, really analyzes it exactly the same way, that you're really dealing, you're really dealing with nonsense. Uh, because if a thing is completely not, not open to verification or falsification, if it is really not open to any form of verification or falsification, you simply can't talk about it. All you can do is make, uh, make a, uh, an absolute statement, uh, I believe. I believe. You remember in one of my books I was quoting Green, a uh, theologian from, uh, from England, an evangelical, who in one of his lectures I heard him say one time, uh, that uh, Boltman, is, uh, Boltman is infallible for 20 minutes every Sunday morning. And this is, this is profound. This is profound. And we ought to understand what's involved in all this. You can say anything if it's open from verification and falsification. So Bazan um, is right, I feel. Bazan is absolutely overwhelmingly right that what we're left with is nonsense uh, in this situation. Now, this has developed an interesting factor that, that it, you have a problem of symbol. Symbol. And symbol in the area of science, symbol in the area of science, is important to the extent in which it is clearly defined. The reason men talk in scientific symbols rather than normal language is because their de definitions can be more no nicely defined in this way. Uh, the, the symbols are, have exact definitions, and therefore they talk in terms of symbol. But a few years ago, if you had been listening to the neo-orthodox and post-Bardian theologians, you would find they were talking always about symbol. But the, you must understand that in this, they were kind of cashing in on the prestige of scientific symbol. But having said this, they were using symbol in an entirely different way, because their concept of symbol was up here. And the value of the symbol to the neo-orthodox theologian uh, is in its, uh, its undefinedness. It's the very contrary. It's the complete contrary. To the scientific man, the, 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 the word symbol, the concept of symbol, is, is valuable uh, to the level in which it is defined with great nicety. Uh, the way the neo-orthodox theologian uses the word uh, simply because he has removed it out of the air of reason, is that symbol becomes something else. Symbol merely becomes a connotation concept. So if you stop to think of it and analyze it, the modern religious trend all is based on connotation words. They're words that are not defined. The definition of words, the definition of words is left down here. And they step away from it and they deal entirely on the connotation of words. And this seems to cause them to be saying something. They seem to be really saying something. And yet when you analyze it, because there is no careful definition of the words, you don't know what they're saying. What they're dealing is, is with emotions. What they're dealing with is memories of the race. So such words as the cross, these have great connotations uh, for our race. Tremendous connotations for, our, for the Western world. Uh, with its almost 2,000 years of the cross having a strong meaning 
And the meaning is put aside, but these men deal with a connotation of it, and they get emotional, they get psychological and sociological responses on the basis of the connotation of the word after they deny the definition. Now, this is really an important thing to understand in your stomach as well as your head. That what they're after is psychological and sociological responses. And what they do it with is on the basis of the connotation of words. Now, it isn't only the modern theologian that builds everything or a lot on the connotation of words. One of the clearest illustrations I know is Carl Gustav Jung. And there were three great men in the early days of, of, of modern psychology. Freud, Adler, and Carl Gustav Jung. And of the three, I think without any question, Jung is the most profound. But many Christians were very encouraged about Jung in contrast to Freud and Adler because Jung was always talking about God. And he used God in his, in his psychological healing of people who he dealt with. And this, and people were, 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 here he's using the word God, you see. But just seven or eight days before his death, he gave an interview in which he said something that showed exactly how, how he was only dealing with the connotation of the words. Because he said, when you're faced with these circumstances, circumstance, what I want you to do is give in to them. And whether you call it God or the devil, I don't care. So here you have Carl Gustav Jung at the end of his life making everything very plain. What you're using is words without definition. All you're using is words with connotation. Because every word, every word, important words especially, uh, has two factors. It has definition and it has connotation. And you define the word in the dictionary, but it carries with it overtones. Which you cannot, you cannot, you can't, it's, well, it's very hard sometimes to put it into def to dictionary definitions. Now what these men have done, as I see it, is to cash in, as I say they don't do as often now, but a little while ago, five years ago, it was symbol, 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 symbol. And they're cashing in on the scientific use of the word symbol, which, sound, which sounds as though they're saying something very definite. But actually, by dealing only with symbol in the connotation of the words, it is the complete contrary. The value of the symbol to these men is in proportion as it is not defined. And Teilhard de Chardin is a clear illustration of this. Nobody in the world knows what Teilhard de Chardin meant by newosphere. Nobody. And yet at the same time, newosphere was his whole key to the solution of his unsolvable problem. And people will get a very happy glow on their face and speak of the newosphere. And then you ask them, now what is the definition of this newosphere? And there's a, to a total silence. <laughs> it's most amazing. It is solutions on the basis of connotation. Um, you're using spiritual words, in quotation marks, rather than spiritual reality. As I ended with, uh, as I ended my little critique of liberalism yesterday, much too rapid, but I hope it was helpful, uh, showing how it followed the curve of the secular thinking, I said what these men are left with are religious words rather than religious truth. And there's, there's certain things that, that, that sound spiritual. I remember I was having, I was giving lectures in Dublin one time. I was invited to speak to the chaplain there, uh, to, in the chapel there of the university. And, uh, then I was invited to the city university, and the city university is very strongly Roman Catholic. And, uh, I lectured and I mentioned Teilhard de Chardin, that he was really a, a new, a new kind of a mystic. 
And uh, several priests jumped up and uh, objected. And some I knew some of them were experts, world experts on Tihar Desharga. So when they jumped up and objected, I remember looking at one very brilliant-looking priest and saying to him, "All right, now I will retract, providing you describe, you give me a give me a careful de- definition of newosphere." And he just grinned and sat down. <laughs> and because the, these things are religious words, and they sound very religious. Uh, as a parenthesis, you must understand there are spiritual things in quotation marks now that have nothing to do with spiritual Christian spirituality. There are just things that sound spiritual, that appeal to the proper thing of the spirituality of man. And yet, they sound spiritual, but with no Christian spirituality at all. Eastern spirituality is this one. It has no relationship with Christian spirituality. But it is, you can speak of it, you have to use some kind of words to describe it, some of these people, the only thing you can say about them is that they are spiritual and put it in quotation marks. But it has nothing to do with Christian spirituality. Now, these, the, once you make this division, once you accept this division in your theology, the kind of thing I'm talking about is, is absolutely mathematical certain, mathematically certain to follow. Where you're using the definition of word dies and you're using the connotation, the connotation of word. And there is no greater connotation of word than the word Jesus. Jesus becomes a very strong connotation word. Uh, after the death of God, with the death of God theology, God, the word God died, if you'll remember. The word God died, but they began to work, use the word Jesus. And the interesting thing is, if you listen carefully, of course, the God of dead theology is itself dead now. But in that, in that particular period when it was having such a force uh, for a few months of uh, the, the, the interesting thing is, if you listen, if you listen, what they did was to sneak the word Jesus up here. I printed it small purposely. Uh, they just, they, they snuck it up there. So Jesus became your connotation word. Jesus became your upper story word. You killed the word God, but you needed something, and you snuck the word, you snuck the word Jesus up there. And uh, the new theologies, the new theologies. Uh, force, the new theology's power, their opportunity, is that they are using these words such which are so deeply rooted in the memory of the race. The word Jesus, the word cross, would be the two greatest examples, although you could use others. They're using words which have, which have a very strong motivational force, a tremendously strong motivational force. So your basic, your basic uh, position, let me repeat in all this, is that there is no way to verify anything. The Bible is full of mistakes, and it is especially full of mistakes, let me repeat, because it's an important thing in our own evangelical battle today, where evangelicalism is growing less than evangelical, is that it, it, it always, the questions are always raised in the area of history and where the Bible touches the cosmos, in other words, science. In these areas, the Bible is cast into question. And then you're asked to believe the religious truth, and it's up here. And this is the essence of the neo-Orthodox system. You can take all kinds of details. You can take, uh, you can take uh, for example, uh, you could consider Tillich in, in contrast to Bruner, and Bruner in contrast to Bart. There's all kinds of details. But I'm convinced the essence... The essence of the neo-Orthodox system is the acceptance of the dichotomy, just as the essence of the thinking of modern man is the acceptance of the dichotomy. 
And it's always the same. There will always be questions raised about the historic portions of the Bible and where the Bible touches the cosmos, and then you're asked to believe these religious, you're asked to believe these religious words. Now, we must remember in this that this does leave the man, as I, these men, as I said yesterday, all too rapidly, it does leave them in the situation where, there, where any personality concerning God is dead, it's all dead, and on the other hand, any real content about God is dead. So you, you have the word God, but you, you have, an, because you're dealing in this upper story situation, it is absolutely irrevocable that you will drift towards having God become the impersonal everything. The impersonal everything and the unknown everything. The unknown and the unknowable. What you're left with is where Tillich is left if you use a different situation. I can make a new blackboard here. And you have here, let me draw this line now as a different line. This is the line of anthropology. And down below is in the area of anthropology. Above is above anything that would be above the line of anthropology. You must understand that Tillich's word God is on this side of the line of anthropology. And Tillich is the clearest illustration, as I said. So you use the word God but it's on this side of the land of anthropology. And all you have up here is the unknown and the unknowable. God is always the unknown and he's always the unknowable. Religion and not Western. That's what you would have in the East. The essence of Eastern religion in certain areas is just exactly this. God is the infinite everything and he's the unknown and he's the unknowable. Tillich, on the other hand, would use the word God, but it would be in this area of anthropology and there would be no certainty whatsoever that there was anything to which it has a correlation on this side, on the, on the top side of anthropology. There's no certainty whatsoever that there's anything to which the word of God is a con would, have, uh, would have a correlation. And that's the reason you see why the people then who followed Tillich, and they were the students of Tillich, said if we only have the word God, let's cross it out. And that was the begin that really was the birth of the God of Dead theology. The God of Dead theology followed naturally from Tillich, and Tillich's position was that you had the word God on this side of anthropology, but on the other hand, the other side of anthropology, you had the unknown and you had the unknowable. And in reality, uh, in reality, you weren't sure there was anything there to which it was a correlation anyway. You're just left with religious words. Religious words. You one of the profound things about Tillich was just before his death he was lecturing at Santa Barbara and a student there uh, stood up and asked a question which showed wisdom on the student's part and he said sir do you pray and Tillich hesitated and said no but I meditate now this is an important sentence because there's nobody there to pray to the only prayer is not going to be going to be Christian prayer in, constant, in contrast to transcendental thought and meditation, Eastern meditation, unless you're sure there's somebody there to pray to. There has to be a person there to pray to or prayer becomes meaningless. Prayer only becomes internal. And you must remember there is a real difference between transcendental thought and Eastern meditation and prayer. Transcendental thought, you turn inward and you're trying to find truth in your head in transcendental thought. But Christian prayer, you are praying outward because there's somebody there to talk to. Now, you can say, and I'm in a parenthesis now, you can say very often the evangelical Christian does not meditate enough. But this is a very different thing from Eastern meditation. 
What we mean is that he, to, he tends then to be more too activistic and he doesn't spend enough time in devotions. He doesn't spend enough time uh, in, the, uh, in contact with God in prayer. But Christianity, you see, is you never, you never start with a vapid mind. You always start by being surrounded by the, the, the content of the scripture. So you are bounded by the scripture in your meditation. You are bounded by content in your meditation. Eastern religious thinking and Tillich's kind of thing, there is no bounding by the Bible because the Bible is not there. What Everything is turned inward and you're trying to find truth in your own head. So you must see that when people talk about meditation, people often ask now that meditation and transcendental thought is so, uh, so, are so popular. They say, well, should Christians meditate? And I always say, well, you must define your term. If you mean that you're going to make, it, make your head uh, uh, a vacuum and then try to find truth in your head just uh, as an instinctive kind of thing or something like this, then no. But if you mean that often Christians do not meditate enough in the really profound sense of Christian meditation uh, of having uh, time uh, alone with God and being in prayer with God and thinking upon the great truths of the scripture so that you really spend time sitting down and thinking of the truths of scripture, you see, not just memorizing the truths of scripture, but so that you really spend time thinking of the truths of scripture and spending the times in prayer, then undoubtedly the evangelical tends not to meditate enough. But you mustn't confuse this with the other. And this was where Tillich lived. This is where Tillich was at the, at the end of his life. Um, you must remember in the book that was, is, is, was still a, was a milestone in all this, in the popular thinking, and that is honest to God. Uh, the Bishop Robison talked constantly about love. Everything was love. But if you examine that book carefully, there was not one word about loving God. It was all just loving people. But there was nothing about loving God because, you see, God is the God, any personal concept of God is dead, any real content about God is dead, and so therefore there is, there's nothing there to love. You cannot love an abstraction. It can't be done. God must be a personal God at least to be loved. You can do all kinds of other things, but you can't love God unless he is the, that which the Bible presents as the infinite but personal, but personal God. So what we find in this new theology then is that a man like Tillich, a man like Tillich uh, would meditate instead of pray. A man like Robinson would talk about prayer, uh, about um, love, but it would never be toward God. And if you examine Robinson's book, Honest to God, carefully in another aspect where he talks about prayer, prayer becomes a good telephone conversation with another human being. And he says this. And there's a reason for this. It's because he doesn't have any certainty of a personal God there to whom to talk. It's a very natural thing. As a matter of fact, Robinson says that he wrote his book because as a theological student, prayer meant nothing to him. So actually, this is the way he got into his treadmill. And of course, what he needed was to become convinced by the grace of God that God was there as a personal God and prayer would mean something to him. Now, we all must say with sorrow that none of us none of us pray enough and prayer does not mean enough to any of us and I include myself very strongly in that even the best it's even the best of you prayer should be better and that's part of our problem but having said all this that's a very different thing once you're born again it's a very different thing to have a poor prayer life and have have the not have no possibility of a prayer life such as these liberal theologians have there's another thing uh, another thing that you must see uh, and that is that the uh, 
this leads, as I said, to something further away from us than, uh, than the old liberal. So you, I married, mentioned yesterday Harry Emerson Fosdick, and Harry Emerson Fosdick would say, Christ was not raised from the dead. And at first blush, this would seem to be the most, uh, the most antithetical thing from the Christian faith you could have. But I would point out to you, it's not the most antithetical thing from the Christian faith you can have. There's something that's more antithetical. And that is to say that you do believe in the resurrection and change it into merely upper story phenomena. Because in this case, you're not only destroying the doctrine, but you're destroying the whole way that the Bible looks at the world and says that you can know something about history. You can know something about the cosmos because God tells us it won't be... It won't be exhaustive as, exhaustive as I've stressed, but it will be true. And the clearest illustration of this was Hans Kung, the progressive Roman Catholic theologian. And let me just say in passing, progressive Roman Catholicism is only existential theology in, in, uh, in Roman Catholic terms. So you have, like all these terms, they take in too wide a span at times. Uh, to be very meaningful. But in general, this is true. Progressive Roman Catholicism is, is Bardianism or existential theology having come into the Roman Catholic camp. And Hans Kung is a very clear example of this. Rahner is another. Gregory Baum would be clear. Cardinal Bia, who, who engineered uh, the details of Vatican II, was an existential theologian as well. But Hans Kung stands out with great clarity. And Hans Kung in a meeting about a year and a half ago in Belgium, said the thing that I think is one of the most striking things we have had yet, and very much in contrast to a man like Fosdick. And Hans Kuhn said at this meeting of progressive Roman Catholic theologians in Belgium, he said, yes, I believe in the resurrection. But if you had had a television camera that day, uh, there uh, there that day, maybe it would not have recorded anything. Now this really is a profound, profound statement. Uh, what it means is, putting it in the terminology uh, which I've been putting it, is that there is, no, there is no normal verification or falsification to the resurrection. It is, grandfather's, it is grandfather Huxley's faith will go on triumphant forever. In Hans Kuhn you see it with tremendous clarity. There's no way to challenge this. You see, you must see what he means. Supposing you had a television camera in the tomb that morning and it was dark, and therefore the television camera was not recording anything. And then gradually, just as the light begins, you can just dimly see the body of Jesus lying there. And then the stone is rolled back, more light comes in, you can see more clearly on your television camera, uh, and uh, you, Peter and John run up to the tomb. John stops at the door, Peter runs in, and John really no, understands there's been a resurrection. But while you're looking at the live television broadcast, the body of Jesus is still there. And this is exactly what these men mean. What these things are are always are just upper story existential experiences. And they have no relationship whatsoever. They have no relationship whatsoever uh, necessarily to anything happening down here. Yes? So the body of, Je- of Jesus is still there. What would John have seen? He'd had an existential experience. That's right. He thought he was. Well, Hans, hypnotism or something like that? No, Hans Kung doesn't need to be so specific. No, I'm being serious. Once it's religious, you don't have to be. You don't have to. You don't have to answer such questions. As a matter of fact, you're unreligious as soon as you ask them. No, I'm being very serious. You you become you become unspiritual as soon as you ask the, the lower 
As soon as you ask the, the, the lowercase questions, you are unspiritual. You have no right to ask those questions. You have no right. You must see this has to do with something with Old Testament exegesis. Two, in the, the new hermeneutics as it developed in England at one place. And you don't hear so much about it now, but it's all important to remember because it's all in the same milieu. And that is the concept that you, you had. They were following Rahner. Uh, they were following the later Heidegger, pardon me, with his en emphasis on language as being the key to the existential experience. And, um, and so, therefore, they would point to the Old Testament, uh, and their idea would be that men had existential experiences in the Old Testament, but they only expressed them in terms of the, uh, of the uh, consensus of their own generation. So what you're reading, so what you're reading is as much, the, the text in the New Hermeneutics is as much an interpretation as the exegesis. Do you see what I'm saying? There's no, to us, you have a text and you exegete it. To these men, the text is already an exegesis of, an, of, of a, something that can be not put into words. So you can't put it into words. It's an impossible thing. As soon as you put it into words, you must remember, let me emphasize, this is what I mean by the fact that there is no osmosis here. This is an absolutely unbroken mind. You never can play any games of manipulating these in this, in this system, as I see it. As I see it, this line is impossible. And as soon as, as soon as you begin to ask the questions of history and of the cosmos, you have tried to bring together the two sides of an irreconcilable dichotomy, and you spoiled it. You spoiled it. You can't. You don't ask the question. But this thing of Hans Kung is really, I would urge you to to uh, grind into your bones and really remember the illustration. It's a very important illustration. So now, who is further from us, Hans Kung or or Fosdick? Well, Hans Kung is further from us, saying he believes in the resurrection than Fosdick was in saying he didn't believe in the resurrection. Because at least when Fosdick said he believed in the re re resurrection, we were using words the same way. When Hans Kung says he believes in the resurrection, we're using words a different way, and our epistemology is different, we're looking at truth differently. So in reality, our difference with Hans Kung and the existential theologian, including the progressive Roman Catholic theologian, I think is further back and more profound than even Harry Emerson Fosdick. It doesn't make Fosdick right, of course. But having said this, the other we mustn't be trapped into thinking these men are better. And I think one of the tremendous problems is that the evangelical is being really taken in by these Roman Catholic men. And there is there is there are three camps in the Roman Catholic Church at the present time. There's the old classical Roman Catholic camp, and it's still very much alive in much of the world, especially in the Curia in Rome. But on the other hand, you have men like Hans Kung and Rahner, who, without any doubt, took over the Roman Catholic Church theologically. I think uh, the uh, with Vatican II, these men are really existential theologians. And they're just as far from as, as the Protestant existential theologians. Then you do happily have a third class of people who, since Vatican II, and people who are urged to read their Bible, who read their Bible and are born again. But I think where the evangelical is getting into trouble is confusing groups two and three. Group three, I don't think, is all that numerous. There's happily, we're glad when people are born again. But they're not all that numerous. But group two is, is in power, as I say it. 
Incidentally, again in parenthesis, I think that Paul sees his job. I think Pope Paul is a brilliant man, and he sees his job as a caretaker. He sees his job as keeping the thing in order. People often say he makes contradictory statements. I don't think he makes contradictory statements. I, say, I think he says the pragmatic thing that holds the whole thing together until the old guard dies. I think, this is, I think he understands what he's doing with great clarity and with great brilliance. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. So I think what you're, what you're watching... What you're watching is the development of a, of a Roman Catholic theology, and that's why they can, which is different. That's why they can enter into the ecumenical movement. I don't know if you remember Father Coham. He isn't in the news much anymore, but at one time he was very much in the news. He was a follower uh, of, um, he's a head of, a, of communications in the Roman Catholic <coughs> University, or what's the name of it, near, near New York. Um, pardon? Fordham. Fordham, thank you. He was, he's head of communications, he was a few years ago in Fordham, I don't know, I haven't heard about him for about four years now. But in the, in the, in the high point of Marshall McLuhan's teaching, Father Cohan followed, followed uh, McLuhan, and he said the most profound statement one time. He said, Gutenberg came and the Reformation came, a lot electronics comes and the ecumenical movement comes. Which is... Some of these men really, I just wish that our own men were sharp. Because what he realized, what he realized is that in, if, you take, if you take the modern view of truth, if you make the, take the modern view of truth, then the ecumenical movement is a natural. And it isn't surprising at all that you have in the modern Roman Catholicism men like Panikar, who writes a book on the hidden, the hidden sacraments of Hinduism. And all this is as natural as natural as breathing. Once you put yourself up here and separate yourself uh, from, once you put yourself up here and separate yourself from history and the cosmos, that which is open to verification and falsification, then what you must see is that you can say anything up here. And that's, if it's, if it's true in every other area, as it is true in every other area, it's overwhelmingly true in theology. Once you accept this system, you can say anything. Once you can accept the system, there is no reason why you cannot join with anybody. So it isn't only that they're uh, ecumenically willing to join uh, with the uh, with the, uh, the the uh, the the Christian, the Protestant, but they're, they're, the the basis of their joining is much wider. Or you can say it another way: it's all Hegelian. You see, these things all oh, they're interact. They're interact. They're interact. It's all a synthesis. It's all a synthesis. Everything is a synthesis. And the ecumenical movement, I'm convinced for myself, I have been from its birth in 1950 or whenever, I think it was 1950, I'm convinced that the, the ecumenical movement never could have been built by the old liberals because the old liberals really believed the differences were important. They believed in the old concept of truth. They changed words. They played games with words. But their epistemology, I think, is the same with the, with the old-fashioned epistemology. Now, when you come to the ecumenical, when you came to the, by the time you came to the ecumenical thing, though, what you had was the birth of, the birth of neo-orthodoxy being in control. And by that time, it wouldn't be either or, but it would be both and. And as a matter of fact, for several years, that was a big expression. You hear these expressions and they're gone. Things, they become chic for a time. But it's good to remember them because as you remember them through the years, they make a picture. What they really mean. So it isn't either or, it's both and. Incidentally, that's the explanation of why the liberal can make, uh, can make the, his new creed today and at the same time keep the, 
the Nicene Creed and the Westminster Confession. Because it's always neither I, it isn't either or, it's always both and. Both are true. Both are true. So they see the confessions as merely a library confession. And because there is no truth. There are no absolutes. So you have a library of confessions. And if you want to know what the church believed in its existential experience in the fourth century, you take down the Nicene Creed. If on the other I'll get you in a second. If on the other hand you, you want to believe what see what the church believes in is its expression in the in the uh, content of that day, uh, in the time of the Reformation, you take down the Westminster Confession of the Synod of Dort. But if you want to see what how men express their existential experiences today, you take down the modern confessions. But so don't you see that what I'm doing, this thing I'm pointing out on the board, once you bring in the area of theology, it really explains almost everything that we're faced with. And, and evangelicals are in danger of being trapped because they don't understand that we're really dealing with a dichotomy. But starting with Karl Barth, history and the cosmos are meaningless, uh, not meaningless, as they become without interest, really. Uh, and uh, all you're dealing with is some form of uh, upper story thing. Yes. And we hear less about the consultation of the church union. Is the ecumenical movement losing any steam? Well, I think it's stalling because people aren't interested. The, the, what you've done is had a lot, tremendous activity up here and very little down here. And I don't know what comes next in this regard. But I know some of the men in Geneva, and they're worried about this. They realize that what they're doing is making great big plans and so forth, and somehow or other nothing's happened much down, down in the grassroots. And that's nice. <laughs> you can be thankful for you can be thankful for small benefits. <laughs> yes. It seems as though uh, theology in the staircase has gone a step further than some of the other disciplines. Let's take uh, secular history. Uh, perhaps I'm not up on the the area enough, but have the secular historians taken their material, their text, the things that they formerly considered fact and put them in an upper story too? Well, it depends, it depends who they are. I would say that if, if you, t I think that's what Karl Popper does. Karl Popper is the one man making the biggest noise in, in Britain today. And Karl Popper would say that you cannot verify anything, you can only falsify some things. And he would include history as well as science in this. So all you do, all history becomes is a statistical average. You're not sure of anything. We really live in a, we live in a day of Alice in Wonderland. And the further you go up the scale of the thinkers, the more it becomes clear. So I would say, not quite the same way, and yet at the same way I think you have the same overtones in the area of the, of, men, of some historians anyway. In, opposi as in opposition to the old. Now, of course, there's always been an understanding we have problems of being sure of historic fact. But that's different, you see. The old historian, you remember what I said about the shift, what the shift was, that the old philosophers didn't have the answers, but they optimistically believed somebody would find them. The difference today is they don't believe anybody can find the answers. Well, now, I think this is true in history, too. I think there's been a subtle shift. Um, uh, the sciences, the say physics, chemistry, biology, the very particular sciences, I don't want to watch my words, uh, is that supposed to be 
only in the, the lower story, upper story, or has there been a, a shift to something in the upper story? With the well, I think what is happening is, I think what is happening, because these men are not certain of truth, that more and more, what, as I stressed in the church at the end of the 20th century, uh, this uh, anthropologist at, uh, what's his name, at uh, Cambridge University, who, uh, I was talking to Falky last night, I thought of his name, I can't think of it now, but it doesn't matter. Uh, in the foremost anthropologist at Cambridge University, uh, he has several times, and once with great clarity, made a choice between two different scientific theories on the basis of the sociological results it will bring. So I think just as we've moved from, from constitutional law, after Oliver Wendell Holmes in this country, to increasingly sociological law, I do think there are signs that we're moving from the old concepts of science to sociological science. And this scares me to death, because as soon as you put on a white coat and you're a scientist, everybody follows you. So if you can get the scientists making sociological statements, you've got a powerful tool for, for what comes next, as I say it. Or you can, but there's another area, of course, where science, you must see, see what I said. I said, at first you had an epistemological basis for science, an epistemological basis for science, which was the fact that the world had been created by a reasonable God. Then that was given up and they took the basis of positivism for their base. Now, nobody, no, there's, I don't know of a single good university in the world where positivism is being taught. So they have no base. So all they're doing is, is out there just finding things. And I think this makes a very, very subtle yet profound difference in the way they look at truth. So I, that's why I say that I think science is going to die. I think science will become techno technology on one side and on the other side will become more and more open to manipulation for sociological results. So in one way, I would answer you and say, yes, science is down here. They keep science in the area of reason, and science, therefore, always equals the machine, and therefore, man equals the machine, you say, in the downstairs. In another way, I can't answer that simply. Uh, I wish it would be nice if you could, but I, I don't feel so. I feel that you feel overtones it because these men have no truth of putting scientific things up here. In a certain, in a certain way, you could, I never said it quite this way. I'm not sure it's going to turn out right. But... In a certain way, you can say that the line between poetry and science is growing thinner. I think that's a good way to say it. I'll have to think about that sentence and see if I, see if I approve of it. <laughs> but I, um, but I, I, would, I, I think that, I th you see, I don't think science is going to be able to exist with this high concept of, of truth. I just don't think so, because I don't think they have any basis for truth. Now, I do want to add that I feel that with this theological, with this theological emphasis uh, of the modern neo-orthodoxy, uh, I do want to point out that I think the, the evangelicals are dangerous slipping into it. So if we talk about the experience of Christ without sufficient content and without talking equally about the areas that are open to verification, we are using now, we are now using evangelical terms in the same way. As soon as you talk about the fact that you're, you're just talking about words up here, the experience of Christ, and you absolutely make a, uh, you, you made a dichotomy here, and 
you're not dealing with content in the area of defined words. I think that without meaning to, what the evangelical done has become his own kind of uh, his own kind of existen- uh, his own kind of evangelical Kierkegaardian. Now, one day it may not have been as serious as I see it, because people in general did have a concept of truth. But now that we're surrounded by a generation that no longer has the concept of truth, then I think an, I think an, an evangelical uh, Kierkegaardianism becomes very, very slippery. Because I think you can move from that into the other. And I think we're watching some of our men who call themselves evangelical slipping just exactly that way. They're slipping into a full-orbed neo-orthodoxy from an, from an evangelical Kierkegaardianism, something like this. You can say, you know, I've heard evangelicals say, about a sentence here, I heard a man say one time who was a well-known evangelical. And he says, we, are not, we, are, we do not set about proving or disproving propositions about Christ. What we're interested in is an encounter with Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? Don't you see that's exactly the same? We're not interested in propositions about Christ. That would be propositional truth. In, in his life, his resurrection, his, his travel, uh, all these things. We're not interested. There's a word here, the word of operation here is propositional. We are not interested in proving or disproving propositions about Christ. What we're interested in is an encounter with Christ. And I just want to say that I think an awful lot of evangelicalism is getting caught up in this. It sounds so spiritual. It really sounds terrifically spiritual to say, I don't ask questions. I believe I'm after an encounter with Christ. But you you see, if you're not careful, you've done the same thing that these neo-Orthodox men have done. Because you're using religious words without definition. What does an encounter with Christ mean if you don't talk about the propositions of the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus? Hans Kung, I'm sure, feels that he has an encounter with Christ. I'm just sure. I'm sure he has an encounter with Christ. But what does it mean when when he says what he says about the resurrection? So I feel that it's an extremely important thing, an extremely important thing to realize what this system is, not in its mere details, but what the system is in its essence of accepting the dichotomy and then being very, very careful not to fall into the same system using evangelical words, but fully having the same mentality. I think we have to write and fight for the propositionalness of the scriptures. I think this is where the battle lies. We have to fight for the fact that the Bible is propositionally true, where it touches history and where it touches the cosmos, and is not just true where it touches, in quotation marks, religious truth. And it doesn't matter much whether we express it in the neo-orthodox way or the evangelical way. If we slip into the system, we're trapped in the system. Now, of course, the opposite side is also true, I would end with, and that is you don't want to end only with mathematical propositions about Jesus. You do want an encounter with Jesus. But the point is you shouldn't separate the two. So you can come into a very mechanical, dead kind of orthodoxy if you only are repetitively stating propositions about Jesus and from the Bible. But on the other hand, if you don't have any propositions about these things, you don't have any downstairs, the upper story becomes just one more form of the same thing the transcendental thought is. You're just using different terminology for the same dilemma. So I think as we understand the orthodoxy and guard our people from it, 
we must also guard ourselves from tripping, from getting caught into the same system because it sounds spiritual, and yet it's the same way there than opening the door. And I would, you remember, let me, let me just give one more sentence. You remember what Grandfather Huxley said? Grandfather Huxley really understood. I think it was 1890 that he wrote. And what he said is, I visualize a day not far hence when faith will be separated from all fact and especially all pre-Abrahamic history. In other words, the first half of Genesis. And then faith will go on triumphant forever. And if we're not careful, under the terms of evangelicalism, we, make the, we, we fall into that trap in exactly the same place where he said it would come. And that is at the first half of Genesis.